This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Shiva Ray. Shiva is an internationally renowned vinyasa flow yoga teacher and one of the most innovative and pioneering yoga teachers today. With Sounds True, she has created more than a dozen teaching programs, including the award-winning DVD, Yoga Shakti, as well as several audio teaching programs, including Yoga Trance Dance and Yoga Chant, as well as several music compilations that are designed for yoga practice. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Shiva and I spoke over Skype. You may hear a few Skype-like sounds. And we spoke over the sound of waves in the background. This is an incredibly empowering conversation about the fluidity, both of our cellular makeup, our bodies, and how to be fluid in our life, even during difficult times. Here's my conversation with Shiva Ray. So Shiva, I'm speaking with you. You're in Southern California. And I believe that we will even hear the waves in the background during this conversation together. Is that correct? Yes, uh, which I know sounds very exotic, but... um... I choose to live in the wild part of L.A., uh, which is in Malibu, and I have a little apartment where it's um, on kind of pylons and the ocean comes underneath the house. So really, the waves you hear (laughs) are very near, and uh, the wild dolphins come into the bay, and just the other day we were kayaking with um, about six dolphins and two babies, and... uh, for me, it really, really keeps me grounded in the rhythm of nature. So, um, yes, you'll be hearing the ocean. And we actually have a bit of a swell right now. So I think that's also why you can hear it quite clearly. It's, we have a big swell coming in. Exciting. Well, I would, of course, expect you to live in the wild part of town. But now I know <laughs> you're, you're also a surfer and that you've yes. actually combined your yoga practice with surfing. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I mean, isn't surfing hard enough to do without trying to do a yoga posture while you're surfing? Oh, no, no. (laughs) Well, um, the thing about surfing is it's very much like the rhythm of life, is that there are the sets that come in. And depending on the swell, it can be, you know, three waves of sometimes the bigger waves in the beginning. Sometimes it can be a set of eight waves but then there's the space in between. And I have to say, coming from you know a meditation background, that the space in between is, is really extraordinary because um, that's where you know, resting on the board, there's this communion with, with nature and feeling the ocean underneath you. And it actually can be quite a stable time. So I'm a longboarder. I'm not a shortboarder. And so longboards, like my board's nine feet, um, which is really the best board for surfing in um, in this area. 
it's really quite stable. And so um, the thing about surfing is it's also can be pretty upper body intensive. So the yoga asanas that I do on my board are not while I'm going down a wave, while, although I'm sure there's some advanced surfers that can do so actually, I have some friends who do crazy things like headstands on a board. I'm not at that level, but I do um, go into yoga asanas on the board. It's it's really balancing, and mainly I'd like to be in meditation and mantra in between the waves. Okay, so just give me the picture, though, when you're doing some kind of yoga posture on the board at your level. Show me what it would be like. Describe yeah, it. well, yeah. actually, one of the things when you're learning to surf is you have to really um, kind of like, I don't know, Tammy, have you ever been skydiving? I've only been once in my life. Uh, no, I've, I've never been skydiving and I went surfing once and it was a disaster, but keep going. Oh, I'm still I'm with you here, Shiva. I was a total dweeb. The first three lessons, I was just a total dweeb, a total, totally awkward. But you have to really press your pelvis into the board, kind of like, you know, bow pose, when you catch your feet and you press your feet into your hands, you know, even kids do it and your chest is open, that back bend that's like a bow. And so literally you're like pressing your pelvis into the board to balance, which you need to do anyhow just to be able to balance on a surfboard like when you're paddling. And then you reach back and I catch my feet and then go into the back bend and it's like such the perfect counter pose to you know, all the paddling and everything. So that's the visuals. And I, I, I've been doing yoga long enough that I, I really don't care about whether people think that's strange or not. I do yoga in the airports. I do yoga when in the grocery store. It just, you become like a cat. And so I have taught um, surfers some yoga in the water just because they would see it and they go like, oh, that, that looks good. But I don't think the cool, cool surfers are probably doing much yoga. They they may not um, <laughs> want to expose <laughs> themselves to this kind of alternative behavior. But uh, Okay. Now, you said something interesting. You said that the rhythm of the waves, which mm -hmm. we can, of course, hear, has a similarity to the rhythm of life itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. what, what do you mean by that? Well, meaning that... Um, you know, when the sets come in, that's when um, is there's this co-participation in life. But the main part of that is that we have no control over the ocean or the waves or the intensity or, you know, sometimes the surfers bemoan when there's no waves and there's just these little, you know, little waves. They call it, um, you know, one feet over toe when it's just little teeny waves. And the thing about that is that when the waves do come in, it's very much when there are life circumstances that happen to us or opportunities that arise, including challenges. And in that moment, every decision that you make is in relationship to this bigger flow that is happening that you don't have a control over. So when I go out with people that are beginners and then the waves start to come in, it's like, you know, you're either going to, to decide I'm going to take this wave. <laughs> and the thing about surfing is that in order to catch a wave, you have to get on a wave just as it's breaking. So that's the first thing is that <laughs> in a parallel to life is that 
sometimes in the risks that we take, it seems we, we don't know the outcome. <laughs> we don't know the outcome and we have to open ourselves to whatever wave is rising in that moment. And so you're never going to catch a wave unless you're willing to get on a wave just as it's breaking. And the other part of that is sometimes you're not able to catch that wave and you have to be willing to fall. <laughs> and if you play it safe, you're never going to catch a wave. And at the same time, you need to know what waves are too big or it's not, it's not, you know, you're not in the right place and how to dive underneath the waves. So it's this way of really moving and dancing with these forces that are larger <laughs> than our small self and yet feel empowered by these instinctual choices um, that do involve some risk. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to make this very real for us by sharing some examples in your own life that you could say would be analogous to maybe big waves that you've ridden and big waves that have wiped you out. Sure. Um, well, Tammy, <laughs> I actually haven't really talked about this publicly, um, but I, I did go through uh, a life change that began in... Um, 2007 when I turned 40 and that's also when I started to do some big wave riding and um, going to Costa Rica where you know there are overhead waves sometimes double overhead waves and I felt like the just having literally the balls to get on a big wave. Like I felt like my balls dropped and in, in going, it's called the outside. The inside is where it's safe to go on the outside where, you know, the big waves are and where the this other surfers are who've been surfing for a while. I mean, it takes balls. And the part about the balls dropping is that it's about really getting in touch with, a deeper desire, a deeper calling, a deeper truth, an authenticity about my own life energy. And there's nothing mental in that moment about catching a, a big wave. And there's also, in the preparation of that, um, I let a lot of perfect waves go by, you know, and you, and you feel so... Uh, I don't know. It's like when a wave that's just perfect for you in the setup and the shape and everything, and then you don't take it, there's something you feel in your heart. Like, um, you know, and so what happened to me is um, like a lot of people, and I call it the great shakedown of 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, I went through a, a marital change, went through um, quite a long process of divorce which sometimes we say in California marital liberation and I don't think that I would have had the inner resources so alive in me when I turned 40 to make this leap had I not had a way of translating my yoga practice in a, in a form that was not comfortable for me when I began. When you said it was awkward, I mean, I like doing things where I feel awkward simply because of this, Tammy. It's like if we are only doing that which is integrated in within us, when life brings us 
a curve, uh, a curveball, or a big wave, um, then I find when I'm able to get out of, you know, sometimes we'd say it in, in common language, like out of our comfort zone, and then find the inner skills, or being able to apply the core connection that is developed in yoga, you know, through meditation, through asana, to now be in this big expanse that the ocean and the power of the waves, it really prepared me to to shift my life and to come into greater core integrity and be willing to kind of you know, also take the hits. I mean, if you if you go out, sometimes you, you get smacked around by the waves a bit. <laughs> it's part of it. Now, Shiva, I love hearing a woman talk about having her balls out. I have to say, I really love that. And okay. what I'm curious about is what in your actual yoga practice mm-hmm. prepared you or gave you the, the confidence or the kind of masculine power to do that? Well, you know, the interesting thing, I guess, when we say balls is um, I have to give you one just tiny image so that we don't um, make it exactly in terms of gender, although I agree with you in terms of yogic practice, we would say, you know, the balls and being active has to do with solar energy, which is often connected to what we would describe as the masculine. But I remember I met this Hungarian fortune teller on Halloween in this kind of Hollywood mansion that they turned into this whole Hollywood thing, uh, Halloween party. And at the very top was this Hungarian fortune teller, very authentic, the real deal. And she had this necklace on that had these two um, crystal balls. And when I asked her about this, she says, these are my balls. (laughs) This is what, you know, we all need in order to, you know, move through life authentically. And so um, uh, I'm basically in my personal practice um, very much connected to the the Shakta traditions within yoga, which means the goddess-oriented traditions and have made many pilgrimages in India and um, work with both in terms of the embodied movement and also in terms of mantra and meditation with really connecting with um, all aspects of Shakti or the goddess. So when you see the images of, of Durga or Kali, which are the aspects of the feminine that um, are connected with the, uh, when we say fierce, we mean this capacity of our consciousness to meet life when that energy is arising, which requires um, since we get back to the balls, <laughs> requires us to be in our root energy, requires us to be connected to our inner fire, requires us to not be thwarted by fears and doubts or conventionality. So I, I think um, my balls are as much um, birthed by my connection to the goddess and, um, for instance, you know, for the past 20 years, connecting to the Navratri cycle, which is coming up in uh, September, October, which is the 10 nights for the goddess. And, you know, three three nights are dedicated to uh, Saraswati, you know, the sublime goddess. 
of the arts and the flow and of um, the inner rivers of our consciousness. And then Lakshmi, the goddess of uh, abundance and tree, all things creative. And then Durga, the warrior goddess, the aspect of the life force that decimates obstacles, inner and outer, that um, limit our path. So I think from going through those practices, I just got in this juncture, Tammy, where um, I was not going to be able to evolve unless I was able to get on a big wave. You know, the, the small waves were not capable of birthing the inner energy um, that I needed to embody for the next phase of my life. Mm-hmm. Now, with this period of time, Navratri, coming up, can you tell us a little bit more, what practices do you actually do during mm-hmm. that time? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's uh, one of the largest festivals um, in India, and it's quite elaborate in terms of um, household ritual. But, of course, you have a whole community of support, and um, a lot of the rituals centered around um, a pot, which can be clay or elaborate, that... Um, you imbue your prayers um, into this kumba, this pot um, that represents really the vessel for life uh, that the forms of the goddess represent. And so um, I don't have a, a place, I don't have all the resources like when I would be in India. So at home, um, the preparations before Navratri, and, and this is something that um, you know, if someone's interested, our, our newsletter gives people a lot of advance warning and um, guidance because I'm really interested in how these universal festivals are really there for everyone. And I try and, and really attune to, you know, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, like everything that's happening um, around the fall season, even if it's outside of our spiritual culture, is usually pointing to a process of inner purification, um, cleansing, and also awakening and fortifying. So the first thing you do before Navratri is really get your house in order. So um, literally like a kind of spring cleaning in the fall. (laughs) And then the second part is to really connect with what your personal altar is. And um, I think everybody has a personal altar, and some people have a very established personal altar, but it's the place where you really are representing this reflection back to your your own heart and consciousness um, of really that which is essential. So uh, the altar is really important during that time and having everything uh, fresh and, you know, of fruits and flowers and um, keeping that space really as a clear uh, vessel. And then the other essential part of that practice for me is... Um, there's uh, the 1,008 names of the goddess, which sounds like, woo, 1,008 names, but there is a chanting practice that goes with that. And I try and at least do minimum of 20 minutes of that practice. So if it, it would take me three days to do the entire 1,008, and if I can, the entire 1,008 names of the goddess. And, and you would love it, Tammy, because it really gives a, a reflection in a very universal way for this wide spectrum of who we are <laughs> that um, gets embodied 
and the goddess. And of course, the understanding in India is the goddess is, is really beyond gender. It's referring to the, the reflection of life itself. So you mentioned these three goddesses, Saraswati, mm-hmm. Lakshmi, and, and Durga. And I'm curious, do you see each of the goddesses as representing a different energy inside of you? I mean, how do you, yes. how do you actually view these goddesses? Yes, um, absolutely like that. I mean, that's the, the, the triple goddess. And I think you know, different cultures have different forms of the triple goddess. And I think in Western culture, it's often you know, the maiden mother crone. And I think what the representation in yoga is, is that we have this energetic spectrum with, say, Durga, um, Durga Kali on the more solar side, the more, even though this is completely both inner and outer, but you could say the more active or dynamically expressed level of our consciousness, and also our ability to come to terms with something that was very difficult for me, actually, that I think this this last period um, I really had to work with in my own being, which is, you know, uh, Durga rides sometimes a lion or sometimes a tiger, and she has these eight weapons that are considered to be weapons of, of um, liberation and liberating consciousness. So we have... Durga on one side, and then Saraswati, you know, her iconography is she's um, sitting on a, a crystalline lotus, and she's playing the vena, and she has her crystal mala, and she's like the very sublime and subtle energy that we are. And Lakshmi is kind of the embodiment of those two polarities you could say and so i think the goddess different aspects of the goddess are very interesting mirrors to give ourselves and i think sometimes we're in life cycles that are better served by one spectrum of this energy and then i think we get these times in between the waves you know where we get to integrate all these different aspects and kind of rest in the center of this potency. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say, Shiva, I've never had a conversation here in this podcast series. I think we've done over 70 conversations so far where we've had the waves in the background. And I, I, oh. I, I just, I love it so much. And it, oh, it, re- it reminds me that one of the phrases I've heard you use, and it's uh, the title of one of your DVD programs is this, idea of fluid power. And I'm curious what you mean by that fluid power. Well, it's an orientation to this continuum that really exists from our energetic body to a a way of being in the world. So in other words, from literally the kind of um, subtlest aspect of ourselves, from the cellular body, from what's actually comprising the cells, the vibrational body. And what fluid power really represents is a, is a kind of particular orientation and practice as well as living in the world that doesn't deny two fundamental aspects of our being, which for some reason in kind of conventional Western <laughs> approaches to the body and life 
are denied and are not investigated. And it, so the starting point is really is, okay, we are primarily made of water. You know, when we're in the womb, this is as much as, you know, 90, 95% because our lungs are filled with fluid. And then we know that decreases, but even at its lowest point, 75%, 80%, we're comprised of water. And then the other part is that we are completely energetic beings. There's no part of ourselves that is not um, in a vibrating energetic expression. So fluid power is about connecting with the way that both water and energy moves, which is as a wave. <laughs> and so it's um, kind of like a revelation and it's beautiful to see people wake up to this really essential aspect of, of how they're actually comprised and that in the actual yoga practice this is then an emphasis on wave motion in asana seeing our breath is literally referred to it as the breath wave and literally moving as the water and energy that we are by emphasizing the circular and spiral and undulating patterns that are already there within the asanas but for some reason we keep choosing and i think this is really the the crux of moving from embodying a newtonian mechanical worldview to embodying the quantum worldview is that we keep choosing to move as solid fixed and rigid beings and so a lot of times you see people in the asanas kind of frozen and Fluid power is really about thawing out the potentiality that we have in movement and returning the circular spiral movement to our joints for lubrication for our, you know, spine and our limbs for really our kind of inner health and vitality. And ultimately, it's a kind of contemplation on um, who we are. Who are we really? <laughs> so actually on the mat as a yoga practitioner, if I wanted to explore this wave feeling, you mentioned the breath wave and, and that was a really helpful idea for me. But how else on the mat do I explore yoga in wave-like patterns? Sure. So um, the vinyasa that I've come to, to offer in the world, we refer to as prana flow or energetic vinyasa and that it's based upon the pulsation of breath along these five patterns. But I don't want to make anything complex because you actually can find them really easily. Um, and the place that I usually start people is on all fours. And there's this practice that is called, usually people understand it as cat's breath. But we actually just call it a pulsation vinyasa where, you know, you're on all four, your hands are under your shoulders, your knees are under your hips. And on the exhale or inhale, you round your spine, so making like an arch, dropping the head. And then as you inhale, you draw your heart forward and you make that arc in the opposite direction. So if you allow this arc to be first generated by the pulsation of inhale and exhale, then the next step to experiencing the natural fluid 
dimension of your body and how this is expressed is literally let that simple movement between those two poles begin to circle. When we see a wave, there's this coiling that, that happens in the pelvis, and then there's this rising that is the rounding of the spine, and then finally when the wave breaks upon the shore, there's this release of the heart forward, and then the whole cycle begins again. So it's about first connecting with that rhythm and letting your body find it, and then also giving yourself the power to spontaneously diversify that by simply embodying the circle and the spiral, and not taking any resistance to moving in a fluid way personally. It is, I digest it every day, the cultural conditioning towards rigidity and holding. And I've actually studied this in, in terms of human, our long human history, and it's really fascinating. So really to move in wave motion is to affirm the quantum leap that we're all making. Now, what do you mean by not taking our rigidity personally? Isn't my kind of rigid motion and my unwillingness to be fluid a personal problem here? Um, well, basically it's been going on um, for most of us since we were in grade school, although, you know, you, you live in the Boulder area, you know, I'm here in California. You know, it's possible that people went to school in very progressive places or where, you know, movement was encouraged rather than stifled. But uh, my background is in movement therapy from UCLA. And so as I was saying, I, I've studied literally the two over 2,000 years of the repression of particularly freeform movement. So um, if you have to, you have to think that back, you can go back 500 years, you can go back 1,000 years, you can go back 2,000 years, you can go into places in the world where right now to move your body to dance or to move in a freeform way was literally something that was um, persecuted to the point that people did die for dancing. Um, I think most people have been, you know, told to sit still. You know, if you're in the, the bank or the uh, line, there's just this kind of cultural agreement in the West that we're just going to hold our body back. And... Um, there are other parts of the world where, you know, I lived in East and West Africa or say if you're in Brazil, where just people are not so conditioned to hold their body in um, a kind of inhibited way. And that if we, if we see kids, it's like just giving ourselves that same freedom of movement. It does seem, though, that when we allow ourselves this wave breath and wave motion, circular motion, and discover areas that have been frozen for whatever yes. reason, that yes. there's also a lot of emotion and emotional yes. release in that that could feel probably sure. pretty personal. and Absolutely. And maybe even a little scary to go into. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean to say that in, in such a No, no, that's way. okay. Yeah. But, but I'm just I, I'm curious about that. What I was trying that. to yeah. say is, is that as you go into the personal strands of those imaginary or literally, you know, just dense muscle uh, fibers that just develop over either some habit or some emotional experience, that as you go into the personal unraveling, know that that you're not alone. That that everybody. <laughs> 
is doing this in a way. And it's perhaps that we don't lick ourselves enough like you see the big cats do, the ti- you know, the tigers and um, from the big cats to the small cats, um, you know, to the dogs, to the animal worlds, you know, this like licking, this bathing, this attending to oneself kind of at any moment of the day when you need to do it, you know, not just letting it accumulate and go to a yoga class or accumulate and go, you know, just when when we feel that densification happening to unravel it. And sometimes there is emotion and sometimes there's just the habit of rigidity and to just know that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And the, the part of the, the scary part of it is, is that it's the same thing like that getting on the wave. It is. It's always, you know... There's always some level of resistance to move from one phase to the other. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned these big cats licking mm-hmm. themselves, and I uh, saw the image as you were speaking of the photograph of you in Vanity Fair magazine featured with these big tigers on the beach. And yeah. I- I'm curious why uh, you chose to be pictured with tigers. I and mean, it was a great moment for me. You know, not very many sounds true authors get profiled in Vanity Fair. So it was just sure. a fabulous moment. Well, um, you know, that was a kind of uh, surprise for me, you know, that this call comes. And the other part of it is, is that, you know, I have great respect for uh, the root gurus and traditions of India. And uh, I did know that, um, you know, Mr. Iyengar and, and Deskachar and, and other great teachers were, were being photographed. But the day before I got to speak with Michael O'Neill, the photographer, and they were planning on having me in the desert. I don't know why the surfing image is is back, but with a surfboard. And there's something in my cells that was like, oh no, this is not, this is, it's back, it's coming back to the same theme. This is, this is a missed opportunity. There's something um, deeper to be explored. And I had been having dreams about tigers just the days before. And it was just one of these moments. Okay, Tammy, here you go. This is one of these big wave riding moments. In that moment, I said, because who else can you ask, you know, for, is there any way that we could have some live tigers? I mean, except Vanity Fair. I mean, you know, who has the budget to fulfill such a dream? Who has the courage to fulfill such a dream? So it literally was just the day before and um, they called back and they said that they had um, these wonderful two tigers that were a year old and um, it was an amazing transmission and the reason why I asked for that was not just because of having dreams but again back to my dedication to uh, the goddess and this process that has really unfolded in me that um, you know when I tell people that I'm actually kind of shy and um, I'm a very circular person. I'm not uh, like I don't need to be front and center, but somehow the force of consciousness is, is the way that it's unfolded in me has really asked me from the inside to be willing to express the inner dimensions of the goddess and of the yoginis who, you know, one of my disembodied teachers um, from the spirit world is Laleshwari, right, who was 
the naked yogini clothed just by her hair, you know, in Kashmir. And, and her poems are so fierce and tender, you know. So I guess I had already taken enough photos and yoga clothes. We Not having clothes uh, on was really had to do with the tigers. Like clothes look absolutely ridiculous with the tigers. And anything flowing, they wanted to play with it. So there was no way to have any flowing fabric. So I think the state of the tigers that is embodied in the goddess and is the, really the spirit of the, the yoginis is a willingness to be in a kind of naked reality, um, to not hide behind um, conventional coverings, but to kind of really reflect the the rawness and, and wildness of nature. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. When you said that it was a powerful transmission, did you mean being with the tigers in that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the hard part, it was actually freezing. It was in November, and I don't know if you've, you can go in the desert and, you know, like Burning Man in, in August, people are like, oh, it's so hot. It's freezing at night, you know. It can be freezing at night. So it was extremely cold. And um, the only thing that the the trainers who you know really care for these tigers very well is um, they said you just can't look them in the eye or they will want to play with you and so it was really it was a long time it was about a two hours with them and um, you know they were at my feet and I'm balancing in this windy um, <laughs> very cold wind desert wind so it was this like whew, this intensity um, and, you know, the sun is going down. So if you've ever been around a photographer when, like, the sun's going down, everything is, like, on the edge. And afterwards, I got to look them in the eye and hug them. And um, I don't think I've been the same since. Hmm. Now, I want to just circle back in a circular way to this circulating, circular motion, this fluid, <laughs> wave-like motion. And hmm. at the same time... Earlier in our conversation, you talked about core strength and mm-hmm. how the physical yes. practice of yoga develops this core strength. And I'm curious to hear how these things go together, the fluidity, Absolutely. the core strength, and then what that looks like kind of sure. on and off the mat. Sure. Lately, I've been seeing this unified polarity between um, the circle and what's called in Sanskrit the danda. And the danda means the staff. And the danda is is your spine, just as your spine can then suddenly turn into um, the serpent, you know. So this kind of, again, this energetic continuum that in, in one given moment, um, relaxing and releasing and allowing form to be more pliable is the the best method, you know, or you don't even think of it as a method in the moment, but it can be a method. You know, I I work with a lot of, with women, with fertility and, you know, a lot of women are, are affecting their hormonal structure by the, not just the stress, but literally being too much in a linear relationship to the world and their body. And so moving in a circular way becomes very, very healing. But for another part of our being or for someone else, we have to have the danda. And the danda um, as a staff has to do with our ability to really channel energy 
and to be in our strength in the same way that um, a tree has its roots and its trunk. You know, that's the danda of the tree, and you could say the branches are the, the, fluid, asp, the fluid expression, you know, that emanate out of that danda. So it's really a, a complementary uh, dance, and I, that's one of my favorite practices is to take people into strength through fluid movement through a kind of alteration. Like, for instance, if you know that yoga asana plank, yeah. um, whether you have your shoulders over your wrist and then your, your body is, it looks like it's a push-up position, but you're just there. Um, instead of just holding that only, we'll do the same pulsation that we do in, in cat's breath where we'll coil up through the center and then express the body from the heels to the crown of the head. And so I think it's really this um, integration of the two that I'm finding um, men and women. I feel like men aren't given enough permission to be fluid and then I think you know, for some women, <laughs> we need to find our danda more, and then it can be reversed, you know. And so I guess that's what I love about yoga is it's, it's full spectrum. Mm -hmm. But we need to open to its full spectrum, and it's very easy for people to just practice one side or the other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing I'm curious about is that you use a lot of music in your yoga classes. Yes. And I know here at Sounds True, we've released four different music compilations with you of music that you love to practice yoga to and teach yoga yes. to. And, you know, I have a memory, Shiva, of us sitting together in a car and you... In your fabulous EV, yeah, Honda. You, and, and, and you were playing lots of songs and uh, showing me the kind of music that we might be able to put out on a compilation and that yeah. you're a natural DJ. But how does that go with the yoga practice? I mean, wouldn't it be better for me just to be paying attention to the wave breath and tuning inside? I'm very interested in um, healing through sound and vibration and the power of music and movement together and really study that both, as I've kind of mentioned, in its long linking for the kind of yogas that were really the yoga of our earliest human history, you know, and we say that we have carbon dating now of our ability to make fire at about 800,000 years now. So we really have been syncopated to music and movement and chanting sound as an integrated modality, or you could say an integrated yoga, you know, a process of becoming more into unified state for, for much longer than we've tried to separate them. So my experience is that, um, you know, I love to practice just hearing the waves and silence um, I try and use music really in relationship to kind of yogic raga theory that there's a particular energetic um, that is really appropriate for the time of the day and, and the mood that you're in. But I also feel that in terms of collective yoga experiences, that music becomes like, I call it like the third language in the room with, you know, verbally guiding the practice being one language and then 
um, touch or the visual of how the body moves is the second language and that music really is the third language and that it conveys so much of what is happening elementally in the body. And so I could purely use only Indian classical music and, and have the same effect. But when I look out into the sea of practitioners who are in my yoga class in Venice or in London or you know, at Estes Park at the Yoga Journal Conference. I mean, we have a lot of ancestors represented there, you know, usually from all over the world. And particularly in Venice, I, there's just a tremendous, fantastic diversity from the Middle East, from Africa, from, you know, all over Asia, from down under, from the South Pacific. So, um, and not to mention just different parts of the United States. I grew up part of my life in Memphis. So I actually play um, a lot of really slow blues and, when I'm giving people then, you know, guiding them through the experience of yoga, the blues can convey more about moving in a kind of slow, rooted, connected way than, you know, a, a whole slew of words. And the whole thing, by the time we reach our yoga experience, I feel we're really ready to shift out of a nonverbal experience. And so music for me conveys so much of what I want people to be able to explore inside themselves. And it is just one of the oldest ways we've unified ourselves. When you hear a piece of music, how do you know if you think, yeah, this is one I want to bring to my class or not? Like, yeah. what's, what's happening when you think? I, I always say I'm it. a kind of equal opportunity employer, meaning that I don't have a kind of genre bias um there's something though that i call it it's like some piece of music that starts moving you um it just has it i don't know how to i mean i could i could play it um you know some pieces side by side and and i have done this when i do like yoga trance dance teacher trainings and i really need to um take take teacher trainees through a process where they become much more sensitive to the effect of music. And what I find is that when I play music from all over the world, if it has this kind of factor, just I, I, I really can't put it into words. It's just something that within the first few notes, that music is inside you and starting to affect you. Um, and has a, particularly, I'm interested in affecting people's soul. And, you know, of course, that's mysterious to actually describe, too. But I think this is this interesting place that music really takes us to is that, um, you know, it's not always how much technique somebody has, but like how much soul they're able to move through the music, you know? Mm hmm. Now, I'm noticing, Shiva, that I have so many things I still want to talk to you about. Sure. But that we're kind and of... I have a Southern way of going on and no, on. No, 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 it's not that. But we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of coming to a close, but I have a couple more yes. questions that I just must ask you. So, okay. So one is that you're a tremendous innovator. You always seem to be, you know, on the edge of the wave, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you're currently working on mm -hmm. that feels innovative to you. Sure. Um... Well, it, it really is related to everything that we've been speaking about and also my personal journey of always wanting to stay connected to the roots 
and also from those roots then be really open to you know the zeitgeist what what's 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 being created in the now that is kind of carrying the spirit of of what needs to happen um and i'm now meaning kind of also on a kind of a sacred activist level you know being influenced by andrew harvey who's a wonderful mentor and so there's a couple of different interrelated projects and um one is is called the the pulse project and it is about helping people to syncopate with these macro rhythms that shape the seasonal as well as the um, yearly flow down to the flow of our daily life. So what this is is um, through our newsletter and eventually uh, in about three months' time it's going to be uh, a membership site where people are given uh, preparation before the new moon, before the full moon, before these um, sacred holy days that really begin, we'll be um, following it from the winter solstice till the next winter solstice, and giving people a way to connect with these opportunities of renewal and syncopation to our macro rhythm. And also giving people tools from Arveda and Tantra and um, Prana Flow to be able to really work with their daily life rhythm. And, um, you know, I could describe that in more detail, but it's, it's really about not just talking about flow or giving someone a, you know, DVD practice, but really integrating it as a, in a continuum through time. And then having that kind of culminate in these different music festivals and um, projects like the Global Mala Project. So I'm involved in, in different music festivals such as Wanderlust and also Bhakti Fest. And um, with Yoga Journal, we'll be doing a, it's called Pulse 108. It's a Friday night uh, at the Estes Park Yoga Journal Conference where we're really working with a cycle of uh, 108 minutes um, and going through cycles of yoga, kirtan, and then freeform movement and raising money for um, this other project, what I'm calling uh, energy activism, to really try and um, harness the energy in the yoga world towards both the inner and outer ways that we can make this shift from uh, toxic limited fuel sources towards renewable energy and for us to see that not just in terms of um, the choices we make of the fuels we use such as even just the simple things like um, you maybe have already done this but I, I was kind of horrified because all those little tea lights that we use if they're not soy based they're completely polluting the environment and so just giving educational tools and tools for people to feel the power of their own community. So they're all kind of interrelated and they have to do with really also linking communities in uh, the United States and in the global community um, through the power of the web and through like what we're doing um, with the podcast and, and not make more information, but more tools, provide more tools of integration. 
Wonderful. And just so people have your website, what is that, Shiva? Well, the easiest, I'm afraid, is just my name, shivaray.com. I wish it was shivaray.om, but we don't have that possibility yet. But my last name is R-E-A. So it's shiva, S-H-I-V-A, R-E-A.com. Or the Pulse Collective, just pulsecollective.com. Very good. And then I just have one final question for you, mm-hmm. which is there are so many young yoga teachers who yes. I can imagine look to somebody like you and say, wow, what a great life she has. She's traveling all over the world. She's teaching in London. She's you know, bomb, you know, involved with all these projects. Here I am. I'm leading a yoga class with four people in it, six people in it. Sure. How, how do I get from where I am to anything like the fabulous life that Shiva Ray has. And so I'm curious to end what advice you would give to such a person. Sure. Well, for one, um, just to kind of speak very plainly, I, I definitely have, have paid my dues. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was, um, I worked for full time, um, while I was teaching my first yoga classes, I almost didn't go to my yoga teacher training cause I thought, how am I going to become a yoga teacher in six weeks? And I was really on this more academic um, anthropology trajectory. But then um, when I lost my mother to cancer, it just really like shook me up at my core. And I decided to serve the bodily intelligence at the kind of front lines at the cell cellular level and kind of trust the ripple effect that would come from that. And I think, the thing that I actually offer to you know teacher trainees and uh, mentors in our program is that it's really important if you're going to be a yoga teacher as your livelihood that it's first your path and that any personal ambitions you have are really put into the compost of the quality of what you're offering as well as the quality of your own 24-7 experience of evolving in yoga. Um, so many times I see people try and like, you know, put workshops around, you know, sending out workshop descriptions or, you know, doing this. And it's just too soon. You know, my basic thing is I decided really early on that I was never going to invite myself anywhere. And the organic effect of that is that, you know, when you're at a level of ripeness, people do start to invite and say, hey, could you you come here? We want to experience this here and there. And the practical part of that is is being uh, like a wave rider and, and really looking to the horizon. One of the things that when you first learn to surf is you need to learn to watch the waves. It's not like, whoa, they magically appear. You can see them on the horizon and you get ready. You get ready for that wave to meet you. You will exhaust yourself paddling around trying to create waves. So I think we have to to really bow to the source of the waves and trust the the way that we each one of us are uniquely um, have this unique seed of of what is to unfold. And there will be times where you know it, it may look like nothing's happening. I mean, I when I I've been teaching for 20 years and, you know, I've been through so many different rhythms, you know, and I remember there was a time where there was just, you know, so many, you know, packed classes in LA for so many years. And then it was really 
time for me to open up to being a mother. And there was a period after that where, you know, I didn't have so many people coming to my classes anymore and being okay with that. Like there's an ebb and flow to everything. And I think the power really comes from how we tend the inner fire, how we relate to the larger rhythms beyond um, just what we can only see in front of us. And so my, my core advice is tend your inner fire and look to the horizon, not anxiously, but to really see what opportunities are there that are organically linked to your own becoming and what you can serve in the world. Wave rider Shiva Ray. Oh. Thank you so much. It's been so fun to talk with you. Oh, you're amazing, Tammy. You're such, I, we could just, I could talk to you forever. And, and really, I just want to bow to you as just an amazing source for generating extraordinary resources of evolution and consciousness. I mean, there's no place like Sounds True. And I just think it's amazing. So I'm also celebrating 25 years of Sounds True. Wonderful. Shiva Ray, the creator of many programs with Sounds True, four music compilations, including Yoga Rhythms, Shakti Rhythms, Jala, Nataraja, as well as an incredible DVD, award-winning DVD, filmed in India. Shiva really took it on as an incredible production called Yoga Shakti, by far Sounds True's best-selling DVD as well as some audio instructional programs that have music combined with them, taking you through the prana flow yoga sequences, a program called Yoga Trance Dance, Yoga Chant, and Drops of Nectar, along with the very original Shiva Ray release, a guided yoga practice called Yoga Sanctuary. Wonderful to talk to Shiva, the wave writer. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.